everyone, and welcome to the 71st episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. My friends know me as JAG. I'm the CEO of the Atlas Society, not named after our uh, guest today. Um, we are the leading nonprofit introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways like graphic novels, animated videos, and the like. Uh, we're also doing something a little bit different today. This episode is uh, sponsored by author Russell Hassan. Um, he's written a lot of books on objectivism, on philosophy, on libertarianism. The guy is quite prolific. So we are going to be putting that link uh, into the Zoom uh, tech, into Zoom chat, as well as the other chats where we are live. Um, Today, we are joined by Dr. Scott Atlas. Uh, before I even begin to uh, introduce our guest who's joining us, uh, just flew into Washington, DC. I wanna remind all of you who are watching us on Zoom, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on YouTube, this is a very unique opportunity. So uh, go ahead and use that comment section to start typing in your questions. If you can keep them short and we'll get to as many of them as we can. So our special guest today, Dr. Scott Atlas, he's a radiologist and a healthcare policy expert. Of course, he served as an advisor on the Trump White House Coronavirus Task Force. He is author of Restoring Quality Healthcare, a six-point plan for comprehensive reform at lower cost. And his new book, which is um, available for pre-order, it's going to be released uh, later in November, is A Plague Upon Our House, My Fight at the Trump White House to Stop COVID from destroying America. Uh, as a professor of radiology and chief of neurodiology at Stanford University, Dr. Atlas has trained over 100 neuroradiology uh, fellows, and he is editor of the leading textbook on the subject. Currently, Dr. Atlas is a senior fellow in healthcare policy at Stanford University's Hoover Institute. Dr. Atlas, welcome again. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jennifer. So uh, President Trump invited you to join the White House Coronavirus Task Force. I guess it must have been uh, July of 2020. I know we're going to be able to learn more about this um, by uh, by reading your book, but, but over, overall, how well did the task force serve the president? And what were some of the, the biggest surprises that you encountered in that role? Sure, so I was asked by the president to come and help at the end of July, uh, beginning of August. And, um, and that's because I was a healthcare policy expert. I had, I had not been a professor in uh, medical school uh, for almost a decade. I full-time was healthcare policy. Uh, but in any event, I came to the task force, uh, but I was the advisor to the president. And the task force, um, you asked me a complicated question, how, how well did the task force do? Because the task force had sort of two separate components, if, if you want to think of it this way. One was the operational side 
the logistical side, the uh, getting equipment and uh, funding and resources, personnel and other things going. Uh, then there was uh, the medical side of the task force and the main medical part of the task force were three people, uh, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks, and Dr. Redfield. And uh, so I would say it this way, the, the logistical side, the ramping up of resource allocation, uh, the uh, very complex things that were done with Operation Warp Speed to get drugs and uh, particularly vaccines expedited, that went very well. The medical side was a shock and uh, it was shocking uh, in terms of incredible, uh, I've never worked with people like that before, let's put it that way. I've always been, I've had you know, 25, 30 years at the top medical centers in the world. Uh, I've been working in health policy for more than 15 years. And uh, you walk into a room, you have to know what you're talking about and when there is a difference of opinion, uh, it's a debate about the evidence. And in the task force, the medical side, there was an, a shockingly low level of knowledge, an extremely low level of the literature, a lack of critical thinking that belies anyone that would call themselves a scientist. And uh, I think we saw the results. Uh, you know, we see people uh, erratic, statements coming out of those three uh, things that were totally contrary and still are contrary to science, a totally uh, a total lack of knowledge about the state of the literature, uh, uh, statements made that were contrary to fundamentals of, of, of upper respiratory infections that we all knew. But the most flagrant uh, shocking behavior of all, regardless of all the political, you know, these are bureaucrats that they've navigated the system in Washington to keep their jobs for decades, not because of their neutrality, but because of their skill at operating that kind of environment. You know, I'm an outsider. I, I was there for one reason, because the country was off the rails and they asked me to help. Uh, and it had nothing to do with politics whatsoever, my role. Uh, so I came in there uh, realizing that there was a completely off course solution to the pandemic. We were locking down, we were sacrificing our children by closing schools, destroying families, particularly lower income and poor people. Uh, and uh, instead of focusing the protection on the known group who was at high risk, because it is not true that everyone is at high risk from this virus, it is only people with a certain you know, characteristics, meaning high age and un multiple underlying comorbidities are the people at risk. Uh, and there are other exceptions to that, but basically that's the risk group. And so uh, instead of uh, focusing on protecting them, there was this massive lockdown. And what the lockdown did was it was a gross failure. It failed to protect the elderly. They were dying by the scores even in those in the nursing homes where there's a protected environment to begin with, and they were destroying everybody else on top of it. And so uh, there was a lack of recognition of the data. There was a lack of understanding. I was the only one who was bringing in scientific papers into the meetings. And uh, I think the readers will be completely shocked 
at what happened when they read uh, what I said. And we're going to talk a little bit more about focused targeted protection because I, I think one thing that uh, people don't understand was how much further, how much more aggressive that you were recommending. It wasn't just, hey, don't do the things that are counterproductive or are not having an intended effect. You were also saying, this is the vulnerable population. We're not doing near enough of what needs to be done to prevent these people from dying. And, and we're gonna get to that, but talking about some of those inconsistent um, voices, uh, Anthony Fauci, was remains the most highly publicized uh, face of the national COVID policy, um, and yet his his recommendations have been you know all over the place. A lot of us are very curious, scratching our heads. Um, how how did he get into this role, and how reliant uh, was President Trump on on his guidance? And how did that impact the administration's effectiveness overall in handling the, the pandemic response? Well, the task force, uh, you know, again, I didn't get there till say August, but the task force was put in place, uh, you know, January, February uh, timeframe. And it was uh, originally run by Secretary Azar uh, of HHS. And there were several people on the task force. And then the task force uh, morphed uh, a month or so later, uh, but Dr. Fauci and several others were on that task force from the beginning. And then they added uh, Dr. Burks and put the task force under the control of Vice President Pence. Uh, so this all happened in the, say February, end of February timeframe. Uh, by the, we all saw, we all watched the same things on the TV and press conferences before I got there. Uh, which was that uh, there were Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks with the president on the, at the podium, and there was a lot of, uh, shall we say, uh, this this uh, disconnect between them. It was obvious there were there were statements made and undermining things that the president said, and the president was saying various things, and even when they were. Uh, potentially really incorrect, the, the others just stood by rather than stepped up and said, well, no, you don't drink disinfectant. They, they didn't want to do that. They were sitting there. So um, months went by till through the spring. And I think the president from the beginning uh, knew that the lockdown was a disaster. Uh, and he was right, would be a disaster. And he spoke against that extended lockdown. But meantime, uh, Dr. Burks, who was the head of the task force, uh, was really, or she was the coordinator of the task force. The task force was run by Vice President Pence. But um, Dr. Burks uh, and the task force changed the policy, as everyone knows, from two weeks to slow the spreads for one reason, that was to stop hospitals from being overcrowded. And that morphed into stopping COVID-19 and stopping all cases and stopping all cases at all costs, no matter what it took. And that was a, a huge error. But the disconnect came between the president saying, we, we shouldn't do the lockdown, we're gonna destroy people. And the task force doctors saying, no, we need to keep doing the lockdown because the task force doctors were not concerned and never mentioned, not even once, uh, the impact of the policies of lockdowns. 
And so uh, there was this false narrative set up in the media that somehow saying you were opposed to the lockdowns meant that you were choosing money or the economy over lives. And that, that's a false dichotomy because in reality, it's lives versus lives. Uh, and the lockdowns, uh, and I can go through in detail what, what that entailed, but um, people, when they lose everything, when there's a significant drop in economic uh, you know, uh, production, when the GDP goes down, when people lose their jobs, and when you shut down the medical care for everything except COVID-19, whether it was in uh, both directly that was done because so-called non-essential medical care was, was sort of stopped, even though it was critical medical care, but it was also an injection of fear into people. People were made afraid to go into hospitals. So there was a cessation of medical care and that killed people. You know, 650,000 Americans have cancer on chemotherapy. Half of them didn't come in for their chemo. 40% of stroke patients didn't call an ambulance. Half of heart attack patients didn't come in to seek emergency care. Uh, so all of those things happened. Meantime, cancer biopsies were not done. Cancer, two thirds of cancer screenings were not done. Uh, the cancers didn't go away. The cancers are going to present clinically in a more advanced stage. Uh, you know, 85% of organ transplants, live donor organ transplants were not performed. They still need the organ transplant. Uh, and that does not even count the massive psychiatric problem that was inflicted, particularly on the younger generation, a heinous abuse of the public trust by so-called experts, uh, which is almost inexplicable what they did, but they, but they never, that was not a concern. I was the only one talking about that. And so what we see from that, as you saw, uh, you know, the CDC released a paper. There's a bunch of statistics I can go through, but, you know, 25% of college-age kids in the United States thought of killing themselves in June after the two months of lockdown. 300,000 cases of child abuse went unreported because schools were closed just during the spring because the schools are the number one agency where child abuse is noticed. You know, we have a tripling of self-harm visits by teenagers to doctors during the lockdown. That means putting out cigarettes on themselves or cutting their wrists. Uh, on the basis of medical visits, you know, we have a, a doubling, a tripling of things like anxiety uh, disorder, depressive disorder, drug abuse has skyrocketed, particularly among younger people. 52% of people ages 18 to 22 in the United States, college age people, 52% of them had an unwanted weight gain during the lockdown and that weight gain averaged 28 pounds. Wow. There's a recent study of uh, this accelerated obesity, particularly in people between something like five and 13 years old. We have set up we, the people who did the recommendation and implemented the lockdown, the people on the task force who recommended the lockdown and the governors and leaders in the government who implemented the lockdowns have killed people, destroyed people's lives, and they've set up a massive public health crisis now for the future. So uh, the level of incompetence was not just incompetence inside the task force. It was uh, 
just so misguided the evidence at the expense of the health and lives of the American people. To what extent is it just incompetence or myopia or, or panic? I, I mean, you know, there, there are some who think that there were certain political uh, motivations at, at play. Yeah, you know, that's, it's hard to say. Um, it, it's not hard to say if you just want to guess. It's, it's, it seems sort of evident. But, uh, you know, I, I hate to ascribe uh, that Motives. as a motivation because, frankly, I saw a tremendous amount of incompetence. People want, don't want to believe how much incompetence there was. It was massive incompetence. I think there are other things happening. There's a tremendous amount of ego involved. Now, this is just yeah. my hypothesis, but you know, when you um, when you are all in on a national stage and you're wrong, it takes a certain kind of person to say, "Hey, they were wrong," and we see it today because the lockdowns were proven to have been wrong. They were harmful. They did not protect the elderly. And when we look at the literature, and you, you could look at the literature, there's a couple of great studies that came out, one from Stanford University in January by Ben David and colleagues that showed that the lockdowns did not stop the cases. Uh, and in fact, according to Johnny Anides, his quote after the study was published was, the lockdowns in most cases were pro-contagion. When you look at a study, first author Agrawal of USC in June, they showed that not only did the lockdowns not stop the deaths, the lockdowns were associated with increased death. The lockdowns were put on and the deaths were already going down. And then when the lockdowns were put in, the, the lockdowns caused more death. And so uh, there's a, there was a complete lack of admission, and there still is today, and we could see it in all the things, and we could talk about the vaccines and everything. There's a total denial of fact going on in this country. And that's what happened during the lockdowns and these people are all in. And you'll notice that when you talk and when you read these, these sort of vituperative comments and ad hominem attacks from my own university uh, about me, but also from other places in the journals, major journals publish these, these opinion pieces, those pieces were filled with criticism, but no data. There was no data criticism. And in fact, every single thing I said about natural immunity, about the uh, who's at risk, about the lack of risk for kids, about why schools should be opened, about masks and the effectiveness of masks, every single thing I said has been proven to be correct. And you know why? Because it was correct when I said it, or I wouldn't have said it. And so, uh, the ad hominem personal attack has replaced scientific debate. So there, there's some, I don't wanna get ahead of myself in the interview, but the, there's some very big issues here facing the country and the world. And uh, they are that there is a complete and deserved lack of trust now in experts. The people yeah. in the public health, the people in science, science itself has been seriously damaged because of these things that were published in the journals like Lancet and JAMA and British Medical Journal and uh, the things that were said, the things that are still being said, there's a denial of fact 
a failure to admit that these people were wrong and we're seeing doubling down on things. And, you know, with the lockdown now has been replaced sort of, not, not really, I mean, not if you ask people in Australia, but the vaccine passports is sort of another uh, very contentious area where, you know, mandating things that may or may not be beneficial. I mean, I just think we're, we're living, you know, Martin Koldorf is a very, uh, is an outstanding epidemiologist at Harvard who I've, I've worked with uh, for a while and he's a good friend of mine now. And he wrote uh, recently, uh, back several months back, he wrote, the age of enlightenment is over. Uh, and, and that's a very shocking, but very insightful statement. Um, fast forwarding to this past year with the, with the focus on the new uh, Delta variant, if we could get into some of the, the science uh, of this, what are some of the biggest misunderstandings about the Delta variant? Um, and sure. what does the emergence of, of new viral mutations, does it change the fundamentals in terms of uh, a public policy response to infectious disease? Well, I mean, the first thing you have to realize is that, and it's hard to explain why, decades, in fact, more than thousands of years, actually, of natural immunity, knowledge, and experience have been ignored, as if we don't know anything about, uh, you know, about immune protection after infection. But let's talk a little bit about the, the general concept first, and then the Delta variant. But the, the general concept is that people get uh, protect the way viruses survive and proliferate once people get enough protection against them because there are mutations going on all the time is that the mutants are the ones that survive and because they somewhat or partially or wholly evade the blockage of spread that people have from either in uh, you know a vaccine or natural immunity and so this is the way that viruses evolve this is expected. It would be a shock if it didn't occur. And what happens when viruses evolve? They be evolve from this pandemic stage into an endemic stage where there is sort of a background of oscillating peaks and troughs with lower lethality. That's typically the expected pattern and that is seemingly happening now. We see mutants, the Delta strain is even more contagious, it seems, from most of the data that you look at, but it's less lethal. Why do I say it's less lethal? Because less people are dying quantitatively versus the surge in the cases. Now, that's for two reasons. <clears throat> One is that the, the lethality of the mutant is, seems to be lower. And secondly, more of the people are protected that might, might die uh, from the vaccines. But the Delta variant, to be specific, seems to be protected by the vaccine. Uh, it spreads rapidly, but is less lethal. And there's no reason to uh, sort of panic. It's always inappropriate for a public health person or a leader to panic, no matter what is happening. But there's no reason for people to panic. This is expected, and this is one of the big flaws in the narrative by the most visible faces of public health, was that the American people were always viewing everything as this is a shock. This is a, a shock that that uh, a child could die. Well, no, it's not a shock. Uh, they die from the flu at a, at a higher rate than they die from this. It's a tragedy, 
but that doesn't mean that you know that we we have certain things in medicine that we understand and and if people would have been told what to expect that would have helped tremendously in allaying some of the fear so the the delta variant and and, the, and this brings us sort of it, it spread it it comes and goes it's dominating basically everywhere in the world except the last i looked brazil i think is one of the few countries that is not dominated by the delta variant but that's neither here nor there for, for this discussion. And, um, you know, the places, this variant, like the rest of this pattern that we've seen, it is a seasonal geographic spread. What do we mean by that? It just like last summer, you may remember, Florida, Texas, the South got a big wave, and then it came down, this before vaccines. And then the upper Midwest and the Rocky Mountain states and the sort of Great Lakes to the east area got hit with more cases. That was their wave. This is the same thing happening now. Florida, their peak of cases was about August 13th, 14th. They're way beyond their peak. The cases are way down. The spread is way less in the entire South when you look at the map. So it came up, It now it came down just like this cyclical behavior that we see with this virus, we ought to be able to learn as we proceed here. And so now we're seeing the, again, the upper Midwest, the Lake, Great Lakes area, the Rocky, some of the Rocky Mountain states have, have more of these cases. So, uh, you know, it has a characteristic temporal time course, a, a course over time of cases peaking and coming down. And, you know, we do our best, and I think this country has done great at getting the high-risk people protected with the vaccines because 93% roughly of people over 65 have been vaccinated with at least one dose, which essentially they all get the second dose. Uh, you know, but places like Florida, they didn't get cases because people didn't vaccinate. They got cases because it was spreading there. Florida had well over, had Florida vaccinations exceed the country's average in every age group including the high risk people 95% of people in Florida over 65 have been vaccinated uh, but you know there's a lot of people 5% of a large population is a certain number and since they're you know high risk people are the ones to die from the delta variant not anybody else there's no special risk factor profile for the delta variant by the way there's nothing different here it's still the high risk people that are going to die or that have a risk to die die Say I, yeah, I did not know that 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 Florida's uh, vaccination rates were were higher than the national average in, in every age group. Yes, something you That's might have CDC missed. data. That's CDC data. Um, so, speaking of vaccinations, you, you know, you were a part of an administration that helped to develop these vaccinations in record time. Are are they they working as well as? Uh, was hoped for or anticipated? Any surprises there? Yeah, so so this is a very important question because there's been a there's been a, a false narrative that has been very harmful. The, the vaccines are highly successful at stopping people from dying and from getting a serious or critical illness. They're very successful. That protection from the data that I've seen so far has not waned. Okay, you have, a, a, they're very good, over 90% protective. What, and so that people should be very uh, feel reassured about. The vaccines are, are, they work at the most important function to stop people from dying. Mm -hmm. Now, 
that uh, sort of, there's other ways to look at the vaccines. And one is, do they stop infections? And it turns out from the data, it looks like the vaccine protection against reinfection or not reinfection, but infection wanes dramatically after say four to six, four to eight months from the data all over the world. That means that you can get infected and people have a virus, they can spread virus if you've been vaccinated. So that uh, has somehow taken hold of the narrative and somehow meaning to many people, the vaccines are failures. No, they're not failures. The vaccines stop you from dying and they're very good at that. Uh, so yes, you can get reinfected. There's a difference. It, it depends what, you know, it depends what the goal is. We are not, we have, the, the vaccine is not a sterilizing vaccine. The vaccine does not eliminate everything in your nasopharynx, okay? That's not the purpose of the vaccine. The purpose of a vaccine is to stop serious illness and death. The purpose of a vaccine is not necessarily to prevent everybody from getting a, a mild infection or everybody from getting a positive PCR test or everybody from having to lay in bed for a day or two with a fever. That's not the purpose of a vaccine. That's not the most important part of a vaccine. So that immunity, that protection has waned over a period of say four to eight months significantly. That's what's, that's what's being shown, but not the protection against death. So the, this has created a backlash against vaccines, against the vaccine. Uh, people are saying, oh, it doesn't work. No, it does work. It's very important that people who have a high risk to die take the vaccine. It's a different story if you're, uh, you know, if you're not, if you don't have a significant risk to have a serious illness or death. That, that's a different sort of calculus. That's a different equation. That's a different decision process than if you should take the vaccine. And this, of course, feeds into the need, the discussion about boosters and, you know, vaccinating children and all these things. Because when people have a low risk for an illness, I don't understand the case for giving them a vaccine. Uh, if the vaccine, particularly when the vaccines have side effects, and we're learning more and more about the side effects, we have no long-term safety data on this type of vaccine. There's never been an mRNA vaccine used. We have no long-term data because obviously we've only had it for a number of months. Um, and we certainly don't have any data, any safety data whatsoever on a booster. I mean, that if anybody says the boosters are safe because Israel gave boosters to, uh, you know, a couple thousand people and they had no significant side effects in 30 days. Okay, that, that's not good enough. That, that's not safety data. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think there's been, a, a again, a a strange ignoring of the scientific process that most medical scientists would abide by. Uh, there's been a bizarre, almost hysteria by people when we know that most people do not have a high risk from this virus. Uh, yet, you know, rational thought seems to have disappeared. You talked before a bit about uh, natural immunity and how strangely absent it's it's been in in the overall discussion <clears throat> about covid where do you think we are now as a nation i've seen estimates um as as possibly as high as half of the population having natural immunity how does that compare to 
uh, vaccine enhanced protection and what what is the argument for somebody who already has had and recovered from um, COVID? What, what extra benefit do they get from getting the vaccine? Mm -hmm. So I'll start by saying I've read the same estimates and the estimates are, yeah, roughly, you know, 150 million Americans have had the infection. I, I, that's an estimate that I've read. Uh, now, what is nat natural immunity uh, is proven in this virus, first of all. It's not new information. This is standard, you know, uh, immunology. And uh, there's several things that people should understand about it. Number one, the data shows that you're more likely to get an infection after the vaccine than if you are recovered from the virus and not vaccinated. Now, what I mean by that is the people who've never had the infection, who get vaccinated, they have a 13 to 27 times higher rate of infection. People who have never had the infection and get vaccinated, much higher rate of infection than people who have had the infection and never been vaccinated. That's point number one. It's protective against infection. It's protective against symptomatic infection to have had the vaccine, uh, to have had the infection. It's protective against reinfection more than a vaccinated person has protection who's never had the infection against infection, against symptomatic infection, and uh, against hospitalization. You have more durable, longer, by the way, protection, better protection if you've recovered from the virus and not been vaccinated than the people who've never had the infection and been vaccinated. That's factually true. It's inarguable. And anybody who says opposite is either lying or doesn't understand or doesn't know the science. Um, and famous people say the opposite. That's why I'm saying it so strongly. Uh, now, what is the data on giving a booster or, or, uh, or the vaccine to people who've had the infection? Okay, there's, a, there's a, an observational study in, uh, in Kentucky uh, that showed that they had a number of people who've been infected, all of them. They took some of them who came in voluntarily, I think, for a PCR test and other uh, who and of those, some had been vaccinated after their infection, others had not. And they had a higher rate of positive PCR tests on the people who have not been vaccinated. All the people who had the infection in the past, some were vaccinated, some weren't. There was a higher positive test by PCR. That doesn't, there was no data in the study on if the people got sick. No data on illness that I saw, no data on hospitalization, no data on death. And we know that depending on how you do a PCR test and the way that the PCR tests have been done in this country, well over 95% of the PCR tests are not showing people who've had act, who have active infection. So, I mean, it's almost a it's, a, it's a, it's a meaningless study when you compare it to the real studies, which are in the UK and Israel and Qatar. And they, and they show that there's a very robust uh, protection of, uh, by people who have had the virus. Now, it's also proven by laboratory that once you get SARS-2, you get the anticipated immune protection that is called memory immunity or long-term immunity. 
And this is something that I was criticized for talking about. Uh, it's almost comical uh, back in the in the White House uh, because I mentioned that we do not determine protection simply by a serum antibody level because everybody who's ever had college level immunology or medical school level immunology first year knows that after an infection, your serum antibodies go away, but that does not necessarily mean your protection goes away because you end up getting this long-term immunity uh, that involves things called B cells and T cells. But in any event, even with antibodies not measurable, you still could have significant protection from the infection. This is known, this is not novel information. This is not a postulate or a hypothesis. It's proven, it's known, it's been known for decades. And again, we have uh, government here and we have public health officials who simply are denying science. They're denying the fact that people have excellent protection if they've recovered from the virus. I wanted to circle back to talking about the targeted protection that uh, that you had recommended. Uh, it wasn't, as I mentioned, just about letting non-high-risk people go about their lives. Um, it was about more intense protection for people in nursing homes, higher priority protection for the elderly. Could you elaborate? Uh, what what sure. did we not do? What did we not do? What sure. what does uh, targeted protection look like, and what might it look like, hopefully sometime in the future, in some country, possibly named America? Well, okay. So historically, what happened was, uh, I think John Ioannidis was probably the first person who wrote a piece back in late February, early March on on this idea that we know who's at risk, we should do everything we can to protect them. Uh, and people at low risk do not need to be locked down. And I, I said the same thing and, and uh, repeatedly since March of 2020. And then uh, also others did, including uh, Martin Koldorf of Harvard, Jay Bhattacharya of Stanford, uh, Sinatra Gupta of Oxford, and several other people. Yet targeted protection was not implemented. So the first point to make is that if you think that the wrong policies were done uh, and if lockdown advocates keep saying lives could have been saved, their policy was implemented. The people who wanted the lockdowns, the lockdowns were implemented. It is irrational and bizarre that somebody who advocated lockdowns blames critics of lockdowns for the failure of the lockdowns that were truly implemented because they were implemented. Now, having said that, what do we mean by targeted protection? Well, I mean, there were many things that could have been done and should have been done in addition to letting healthy people live, uh, but um, targeted protection meant that uh, we could have increased the protection of the nursing homes. For instance, in the, uh, when I got to DC, the nursing homes were, the order was, let's test the staff once a week. All the cases were being brought in from the staff into a nursing home. You know, nursing home patients make up anywhere from 30 to 50% of, of deaths. And, you know, even places like Sweden, who were more rational, 70% of deaths in Stockholm at one point were in the nursing homes. They did a very poor job of protecting the vulnerable. And the vulnerable were known to be the older people that are frail in nursing homes, by the way. That's true for almost every infection, including cold, common colds 
and regular flu causes massive death in nursing homes. We knew this, but this was not new to be discovered. In any event, they were testing staff people once a week. And I said, well, that, that's, that's ridiculous. The staff people need to be tested three times a week, five times a week, every single day. They're bringing in the cases, okay? Uh, so what we eventually did, uh, and I wasn't the only one who did this, uh, Seema Verma of, of Medicare, she, she did a great job of, of understanding that we need to increase the protection. So we did more testing, far more uh, personal protective equipment, uh, instant, uh, instant 15 minute, you know, quick result tests in all the nursing homes. Um, we set up uh, infection alliances with hospitals for helping infection control in nursing homes. So they don't know how to do that like a hospital does. There were CDC strike teams set up. Uh, I, I advocated and we got massive tests sent to senior centers. It's not just the nursing home seniors, it's the non-residential seniors that weren't protected also. So they frequent these senior centers for their activities. Uh, we got massive numbers of, of uh, state-of-the-art testing sent to their more personal protective equipment. Uh, I was advocating to get the people that live independently who are on Medicare and high risk, and we knew who they were. Uh, I wanted those people to get notified when their community spread was high. Uh, so that they could be be very careful and avoid any group setting and you know be very careful they free. so there were a lot of things that could have been done some were done and actually if you look at the data the uh it's a survival rate for older people uh in nursing homes came down by 50 percent by the time the, the end of november came which is when i left and I'm not taking credit for all of that. I'm just saying that more things were done to protect them and they should have been done from day one and they were not. Very, very interesting. And of course, uh, it just should have been the standard policy across the United States to make sure that the, the elderly got the first round of vaccines. And um, this was not the policy recommended by the CDC. Again, the CDC and many public health leaders who are deemed expert by society or by their title or by their credential, uh, we now know that the credential is not, is not the necessary ingredient here. It takes a critical thinker uh, and, and most people have that kind of common sense, but the CDC came out and said the first level should be the first responder types. And uh, just as one example, Governor DeSantis said, no, the first people getting our vaccines are gonna be the old people because they could die. I mean, this, you don't have to be a genius to figure out this. This is, this is very simple logic that was ignored and is still being ignored repeatedly all over the country. We have a ton of questions and okay. we have about 17 more minutes um, before we let you go. And we're again, very grateful. So I'm gonna try to race through a few of these. Uh, we have a couple of questions from Professor Richard Salzman, who's uh, a senior scholar at the Atlas Society asking uh, if you're aware of, were you encouraged by the Great Barrington Declaration that was um, issued by the American Institute for Economic Research? It got a widespread media coverage, but seems to have had uh, little positive well, impact. So, I mean, you know, I, uh, yeah, that, that, that Great Barrington Declaration was uh, composed in October and uh and i was uh i am very close uh with the three people who wrote that uh, we had been talking for months uh 
and I actually they uh, they came to uh, at my doing uh, to be meeting with Secretary Azar in, in Washington D.C. Uh, that weekend. Um, and so I'm encouraged. Well, they they are they're also very courageous people. These three uh, epidemiologists and medical scientists, Sinatra Gupta, Martin Kaldorf, and Jay Bhattacharya, they're also very close friends of mine now. And, um, you know, I had been speaking to people like that, them and uh, Johnny Anides and others almost every single day for months since since March of 2020. Uh, and, you know, we were all on the same page with with that targeted protection. So I'm I think it's it's uh, it's positive that you know, hundreds of thousands of people have co-signed that, including, you know, uh, I forget the number, 15,000 uh, medical scientists and practitioners. And yes, there's a lot of people who see the targeted protection uh, and ending a super destructive lockdown that was failing was the way to go, the logical way to go, the ethical way to go, the, the uh, the medically indicated way to go. And I'm, it's very good that people, uh, that that was written, that people uh, took it seriously. It gave more people courage to come out. You have to realize the climate uh, still is like this, but um, I had hundreds of medical scientists all over the world email me during this whole process saying, Scott, keep saying what you're saying, keep going, you're exactly right, but we cannot step forward, we're afraid. We're afraid for our jobs. We're afraid for our families. So, you know, people like me, you know, uh, I mean, I got death threats, many. Uh, it's, it's insane. The country is really, there's a lot of vicious, sick people. I hate to say it that way, but there, there, there are. Uh, but it was uh, fostered by the uh, really hyper-partisan reaction of politicized academics at universities who couldn't argue on the merit of the argument, so they just, you know, went ballistic and issued character smears, and that's very harmful to the public good. So the Great Barrington Declaration and targeted protection is correct; it's proven correct, and it will—they will never admit they, the other side, will never admit they were wrong. And you know, by the way, I—I—I I, 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 I wouldn't have time, but uh, you know, uh, the data shows that the targeted protection was better, the lockdowns were worse. And we can look at states like Florida, where Governor DeSantis, we have an internal control. That's Florida versus California, very similar states, similar in their heterogeneity of ethnicity and their rural versus urban and their climate in their size, except one, California did persistent draconian lockdowns and Governor DeSantis opened everything, never did a full lockdown. And he opened everything in August, including all the children were in in-person schools if they wanted to be since last September. And we see the data, Florida did better than California, better in age-adjusted mortality from COVID, uh, in excess mortality, meaning the total number of deaths during the pandemic over baseline, better than California. Florida did better than two thirds of states in excess mortality. Florida did better than 40%, beat the national average by 40%. And why is that important? because it's the burden of the states that did the lockdowns to do better because they destroyed people with the lockdowns. So what did they get for it? Florida doesn't have to do better. They just have to do average. It turned out that Florida ranked number one, the best state for age-adjusted mortality of all the 10 large states after the first year 
of the pandemic. That's through the spring. They rank number, they had the best, the lowest age adjusted mortality. They don't have to do better to be proven right. They just had to do reasonably close, but they actually did better. So the, the gross error of doing the lockdown, it killed so many people and we still don't talk about it. We still talk about somehow this bizarre notion that children have high risk. They do not have high risk. They have extremely low risk. And to close schools is, is frankly a sin to, distract, to uh, destroy the children for doing that. Uh, yet we don't talk about the harms of closing the schools. I mean, I'm not sure if you've ever seen the most visible face of public health on TV talk about the harms of the policy. I'm sure you Kevin, have not. Kevin Michael Callahan on YouTube asks uh, a direct question. Um, since four to eight months was mentioned, he's asking, maybe asking for a friend, maybe asking for himself, if an individual tested positive, okay, in December of 2020, so last December, what would be the suggested actions in your opinion? So. I think what you were saying was the four to eight uh, month protection was for the vaccine. Yeah, I'm going to clarify. Not for, yeah, yes, not for the, the. Okay, so it's the vaccines that protect long term so far against death and hospitalization. They do very well at that. But the vaccines do not protect against an infection. Infection. Mm -hmm. Law that seems like beyond, say, four to eight months with, with high frequency. They, they're better than not having the vaccine. I'm not saying that. But they're, the immunity wanes, and in some studies, it's been shown to wane down to nearly zero protection against an infection. That's the vaccine. If you've had an infection, you have long-term protection so far. That's what the data shows, much better than the people who have never had an infection but been vaccinated. This is a question from Mark Shoup. It's about testing. Uh, what do you think of the Trump administration policy on testing? Was there enough testing under the Trump administration? Was there too much testing? Uh, yeah, so, like kits? Yes, before I came, this is back in early days of like February, March, uh, 2020, the testing was sort of a debacle. Okay, I wasn't there, remember, so I, I had no insight or personal conversation about it. <clears throat> but from what I saw and read, uh, the CDC uh, messed up quite a bit with the testing. And so there wasn't enough testing, and that's a shame because the testing was important in the beginning, far more important in the beginning. What the Trump administration did succeed in doing was develop a massive testing apparatus and state-of-the-art testing with rapid, you know, uh, and, you know, not a two to three day turnaround, but a 15, 20 minute answer. Uh, and also antigen testing in concert with, of course, private sector. So they ended up developing a massive testing apparatus. And the problem with the testing, and I talk quite a bit about this in the book, uh, is that testing is a strategic tool. Once you have tens of millions or a hundred million people with an infection, that's not the time that any any credible uh, you know epidemiologist or infectious disease person thinks that you start implementing detailed contact tracing. You can't. It doesn't work. It's impossible, and we've seen that that these these efforts are overrun. So, but testing is very strategic uh, because uh, 
certain people need to be tested. If you're going into a high-risk environment, you need to be tested if there are people that are not protected from, the, from dying. And so that's an example of a strategic tool would be massive frequent testing in a nursing home setting or in a senior center setting. I mean, that, that kind of strategic use of testing. So instead of, it's not true that everyone needs a test constantly. That frenzy is just not the way uh, to think about things. The way to think about things is how do you use that massive testing apparatus to save lives? And so what we did, one of the things that I advocated for and that was done was we sent extra tests to high-risk environments, as I mentioned, including historically black colleges and universities. Why? Because the faculty members are higher risk there. So that's a high-risk setting, but all generally universities and, and schools are low-risk settings. But if you have a certain kind of setting that's high-risk, okay, testing is very important in those. All right, well, in, in the maybe seven minutes that, that we have remaining, there's a bunch of different questions from different platforms, um, but a few that could be grouped uh, under similar headings. Uh, a lot of people asking about masks. Uh, they, they say that there was different guidance given early on. Uh, I've seen interviews with Dr. Fauci just really poo-pooing masks and saying, oh, you know, don't be paranoid. And then it was do two masks. So just help. <laughs> Help us clear the confusion on masks. Well, Do they help? And then also some questions on on Sweden. What are the, the takeaways? It was considered a cautionary tale, but perhaps we know now more that more time has passed. Yes, very good questions. Um, I'll try to not go on and on. Uh, so the we've Dr. got the time, but I know you've got yeah. also other engagements. Dr. Fauci had it right in the beginning in the email trove that was uncovered when he explained why masks surgical masks, the kind you would buy, would not work uh, because the virus is smaller than the 120 nanometers pore size in the mask. The virus spreads by in your breath. It's, it's, uh, it's, not a, it's not only being spread at all by like large droplets. Doctors wear masks because when we do procedures, we don't want our spit are coughing going into a a, a, a clean wound, mm -hmm. a sterile incision we don't want to have blood spray in our face you're talking about bodily fluids that's not the way the virus spreads the way the virus spreads is aerosolized it goes around the mask if you've ever worn sunglasses or glasses with a mask your 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 glasses fog up okay what's the data on the mask there's three sets of data on the mask the first study is the, a large randomized trial in Denmark, more than 6,000 adults. They had people, the groups of people that wore masks versus the people that didn't wear masks, they were all tested for the virus. There was no significant difference in the people that wore masks versus the people that didn't wear masks as far as getting the infection, okay? Masks do not protect I'm talking about widespread population masks do not protect the mask wearers. That's the Denmark study conclusion. We looked at all the data in every country, every state, when the mask mandates were done, the cases exploded through the mask mandates. You may say, well, maybe they weren't wearing masks. No, you look at the percent of people wearing masks, it was 80, 90% during the entire summer and the cases exploded through the mask mandates and through the mass usage. And the University of Louisville study, I think it was written in February or March, 
uh, was published, and it shows on an analysis that mass did not mass mandates did not stop the spread, mass usage did not stop the spread of the infection cases. Now, the third type of study was this Bangladesh study recently. It was very different. It was they told two sets of villages, one set of villages wear masks. The other set of villages, they didn't talk to, they didn't tell them to wear a mask. And uh, then they checked the number of symptomatic people that lived in those villages. They didn't test them for the virus. They tested them for antibody. We don't know if any of them converted to antibody, by the way, during the study, but that's besides the point. Let's take it at face value. People, did you or did you not develop symptomatic COVID? These were people, whether or not they wear masks, there's nothing to do with who was wearing a mask. The villages, they were living in a village where some people wore masks versus living in a village where less people wore masks. And when I say some people, even the villages that were instructed, less than half the people wore the masks. Okay, and so their result is that the symptomatic cases were lower in villages where people were told to wear masks by 11%. And the only people that had less symptomatic, fewer symptomatic cases were people 50 to 60, People 40 to 50, they didn't have any fewer. People 30, so that's a that's a red flag. Why, why, what does that mean to me? They lived in the same village. This is not that people were wearing masks that were, you know, it was the, the only a certain age group and only a partial protection. And so to me, it means it's more, to me, it's more likely, we don't know what the people that were older were doing. Maybe they weren't going into the large group settings. I don't know. But in any event, we see that's confirmatory. That study confirms that masks are not very effective at protecting from COVID. There's no, I don't know why people were celebrating that like there's some kind of a big uh, finding there. It doesn't show that at all. And so the bottom line is that large scale widespread population masks do not protect the mass wearers and they do not stop the spread of cases by testing and they do not effectively stop the spread of COVID, except in a certain age group. And so that's the data. Okay, that's not an opinion, that's the data. Uh, it, you know, nobody has to argue with me about it, but they will. Um, and so, you know, that, that's the question. Uh, now that's different from saying, if you're symptomatic, should you be wearing a mask? If, you're, if I'm coughing, I don't want people to have me cough. If you think someone's gonna cough in your face, then it might be worth having a mask on or, and that means symptomatic COVID, or if you have taken care of somebody who's very high risk and you have COVID, they, they should stay out of your room, but you know they should wear a mask, you should wear a mask because you don't want large droplet. But in terms of the uh, contamination, the aerosolized spread in the general population use, that was the data, what I showed you. And by the way, the Denmark study tested for virus, for 12 different viruses. Hmm. Does it protect mass wearers? And it does not. It doesn't. Didn't stop any of the twelve. Not influenza. None of them. Zero. Well, with that, that brings us up to the top of the hour. We'll maybe uh, see if we can entice you to come back uh, and join us for a clubhouse chat. That that might be nice. Um, but we really are so grateful. We are very much looking forward to the release of your book. I have already pre-ordered mine. Um, I want to encourage those of you who are uh, joining us for this live broadcast 
to also go out there and pre-order a copy of A Plague Upon Our House, My Fight at the Trump White House to Stop COVID from Destroying America, a fight that I know is, is ongoing for you, Dr. Atlas. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you for having me. And thanks to the rest of you for joining us. Um, I want to, again, ha have a special thanks for our sponsor today, Russell Hassan. Uh, check out his Amazon page. The guy is prolific and, uh, and, and very provocative. So uh, give it a look. I um, want to also encourage all of you who are watching us to come back next week. I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Uh, Wilfred Riley uh, about his book, Hate Crime Hoax. And I also want to remind all of you, we're six weeks out to the gala coming up in Malibu on November 4th. We're gonna be honoring Peter Thiel with special remarks from uh, Palmer Lucky and the big, big news. Uh, we're gonna have a live performance of Patria y Vida, the anthem of the Cuban uprising against the dictatorial Cuban regime. We are flying them in from Latin America. So I hope you will join us and, uh, and we'll see you next week. Thanks everyone. <laughs>